Good morning. Well, there are a couple of milestone moments in every person's life. The first one, or one of them, is when you realize that your family is weird or awkward. And for most of us, that was in middle school, right? It became painfully uh, obvious that we come from weird homes with weird families. But the second milestone moment is when you discover that everyone's family is actually weird or awkward. Can I get an amen? amen? So all of our families are goofy. And in case you didn't know how to discover the proof of that, just type in these three words into Google. Ready? Awkward family photos. If you've ever done that, you can spend a half a day, which I did this week, just reveling in the awkwardness that we all get to share. Now, the Jessens are one of those families. This was a photo shoot right here of us. And there's... There's even a, a more awkward moment. Just, just zoom in there on uh, Samuel there. Yes, right there. <laughs> let, me, let me just let you know that boy is his uh, daddy's son, right? There are other pictures that I got to scour the internet and discover, um, like this family right here. There's a little bit of awkwardness. In case you missed it, just zoom in there for a second. There's that guy. And there's a family that I discovered is very passionate about fungi or mushrooms. That's this group of guys, I don't really know why, but uh, there's also a family that I discovered that are really, um, are passionate about their fathers, uh, sort of the paternal kind of thing. Look at just awkward dad staring off into the distance with his half-tinted glasses. It's a beautiful bit of awkwardness. And then there's some families that are just passionate about space and cats, for instance. So they want to make sure their family photo <laughs> proves that. Now, the reality is it's not just people on the internet that have awkwardness. Did you know that we have awkward families here at Two Rivers Church? And let me ask you, would you like to see some pictures that are from our church family here? Because we dug some up and some people were surprised in the first service because we had some submissions and they didn't even know that they were going to be on the screen. Like uh, this family, the Cherick family right here and all of its awkward Glory right there. That's Penny and Harry to the right. Lindsay there on the far right. I don't know if this is like a sister wives situation or not there in terms of who, how many moms or wives there are, but this was the family photo there. We've got our very own Laura Wolf, who was photographed with her family. This was when apparently uh, bowl cuts were socially acceptable for both boys and girls. Actually, as well, mom just got out the bowl and cut everyone's hair. That was Laura on the far right. We also have the Lamison family right there. And this was back in the 90s when I guess they wanted pictures of people falling down, you know, on top of each other while wearing turtlenecks, uh, because that's what we have in all of its 90s awkward glory. We have Honey and Bear, who are actually here with us running tech and lights. There's, can we together just say awe together? One, two, three. Isn't that not so much awkward as it is adorable there, honey and bear. And last but not least, we have one of our elders that was captured as a small boy there. You may recognize the young man on the far right in that picture who apparently turned his head 360 degrees <laughs> for, for this picture. Well, that's, a, that's a really awkward picture of Kyle Casey there on the right. Now, the question you may be asking yourself is, what, 
what do these awkward family photos have to do with the book of Acts, which we have been teaching and reading here in this new year? And it's this, as we've gotten to know the family of God, as it explodes onto the scene in the first century, we're starting to learn some things about God's family. Namely, that he calls us to be different than the culture that's around us. That he calls us to live and to love in such a way that when other people interact with us or they see us, they should look at us and they should turn their heads and wonder why it is we live the way that we live. And she say, I don't know, there's just something different about those people. And as we've gotten to know the early church here in Acts, we've seen that they are different and distinct. These people are generous. They're characterized, and over and over you hear Luke saying that they were bold. These people are filled with the Holy Spirit. They're led by the Holy Spirit. They're unified by the Spirit of God. And the rest of the world is looking on and wondering, why? And as we get to chapter 13 of Acts this morning, we're going to see in just three verses some more distinctive ways that God is calling us as his family to look just a little bit different than the world around us. So what are some of those differences? Because this matters as we look at and consider our lives and who we are and what God is inviting us to step into as we trust him and become more and more like him. If you're with us last week, you know, Isaac walked us through some dark days for the church in Jerusalem. Persecution is beginning, and we begin to see the synagogue leaders. They're doing their best to crush this movement that God has clearly begun. We see that Christians are being drug out of their homes. Many people were martyred for their faith and their beliefs in Jesus. But what we saw, as Isaac said, is the greater the persecution, the faster the church grew. And isn't this how God works? That as things become more difficult, even as we think about our lives, as opposition increases, God will actually in turn grow his church more broadly and he'll also grow us more deeply. Now think about your story for a minute. Think about the times in your life when you grew the most as a believer. I bet it was connected to a season that was hard, maybe characterized by struggle. And God sent roots deep down into your soul, and you saw him show up in ways that you never had up to that point. It's often when we're struggling or when we're suffering that God grows us. James, who is Jesus' half-brother, he was the pastor of this church in Jerusalem. He was actually writing to this church who had now been scattered throughout the region because of persecution. Listen to what he said in chapter 1 of James. He said, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness. And I love this next verse. And he said, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. So let me say, be encouraged. If you're going through something hard right now, if you're facing a trial, know this, that God is working. He has not abandoned you. He has not forgotten you. And he is not going to waste anything. 
And so we see here, despite persecution, the gospel is exploding from Jerusalem. And we see the church beginning to grow. I have a map of just how it's beginning to grow. And it will radiate out into the world. And of course, this is what Jesus promised would happen in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You remember what he said? He said, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come to you. And you will be my witnesses. And here he says, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And we know that this promise was fulfilled because we're here in this gym in Udawa today. We're a long way from Jerusalem. And Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not come against it. The work of God cannot be stopped. This is good news, isn't it? And that's the good news of the gospel. The more people try to stymie or stop the work of God, the more it advances. When we think about who was in charge at the time that all of this was happening, when Jesus showed up and he began his ministry for three years and then afterwards with his disciples, it was Rome. And the Roman government, they had jurisdiction from India to England. Massive swath of ownership and leadership. And they thought, well, we'll kill Jesus and that'll stop this movement. And it didn't. And then they thought, well, then we'll take these disciples and we'll, we'll do our best to kill them. They literally dragged them out of their homes. They threw them in the lion's dens. They sawed them in two like Jesus. They crucified them and they, they put them along these busy thoroughfares, crucified, so that when people had to walk and travel by these believers, they would see what would happen to them if they put their faith in Jesus. Assuming that this would turn around, that this would somehow slow or stop the movement of the Holy Spirit as it began to grow and as it continued to pick up steam. And the question is, did it work? Well, by 351 AD, 51% of the entire Roman Empire had bowed the knee and believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. God's work cannot be Stopped, And so as we zoom in and we look at the church in Antioch, what we know is that God doesn't just want to create converts. He wants to see that we as his family are actually changed, that we look different. So what are some of those distinctives that we see here in chapter 13 of Acts? And how might those distinctives mark us too as we continue to trust and follow Jesus, I want to introduce you to the ceiling, by the way. The ceiling is a part of our experience here at Two Rivers Church. That are, these are angels that are walking around as we're preaching. Open up your Bibles or your smartphones, fire them up to chapter 13 of Acts. Verse 1 says this. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Now, at a glance, we might miss what's going on here. There's a lot going on here. In particular, as we look at and think about and learn more about the people that are on this list gathered together to worship them. So let's see who these people are and see why that's so significant. Two characters that we see here are Barnabas and Saul. If you've been with us over the last month and month and a half, you know that we were introduced to Barnabas a few chapters earlier. And to refresh us, chapter 4, verse 
36, here's where we get to know Barnabas. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we see this guy named Joseph or Barnabas. He's in. The apostles see something in this man. And so they bring him into leadership and they empower him. It's, it's really interesting because I guess as he got favor, you know, and he introduced himself to the apostle, hi, my name is Joseph. They're like, no, you're not. <laughs> Your name is Barnabas now. <laughs> and so he gets a new name, which means son of encouragement. So apparently there's something that they saw in this man's life that defined him away that was more significant than even his given name. Names in the Bible are a lot more significant than some of the names that we have or think of today, but it it symbolized and often prophesied who you are and who you would be. And I saw that this man had the gift of encouragement. I wonder if you have someone in your life like that. Someone that when you're with them, you just afterwards, you just, you stand a little taller and you feel a little better. Your tank is more full and you just feel like they've got that gift. I just love being around, I love being around that person. Barnabas was that guy. So this is Barnabas. And then we have this other guy named Saul. Well, who is he and why is it significant that he's hanging out with Barnabas? Verse 1, back in chapter 8, we get to know Saul a little bit. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. And here we go. But Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged men off and women and committed them to prison. You cannot get more disparate and different than these two men. Barnabas, son of encouragement, taking all the resources he had to build up the church. Saul, bent on destruction and murder, taking all the resources he had to destroy the church. And as you think about it, clearly, Barnabas had had some friends that Saul was responsible for killing. Imagine, he sees this man and somehow something has happened to take these two people who have no business being in partnership, friendship, and ministry together. What is it? It's the gospel. It's what the gospel does. It reconciles relationships. These two who are once enemies. I think God actually platforms them early on in ministry to prove a point that he can take people who are even the farthest end of the spectrum and bring them together and can accomplish his purposes through them. And it's because of what Jesus did on the cross that makes all of this possible. It's what he does in relationships. First, in our relationship with God, reconciling that relationship, and now we get to reconcile our relationships with one another. Have you experienced this in your life? A relationship maybe that went sour or south. Someone that you had tension with that you thought was too far gone, that relationship. Maybe it was somebody close. 
And because of the work that God has done in your heart or did in that person's heart, you saw a miracle begin to draw the two of you together. The walls of hostility that was creating a fractured relationship now being brought down. The forgiveness that you never thought possible was made possible. Let me step on your toes for a second. Is there someone right now that as I describe this, maybe maybe you still have that tension or that dissension? There's someone you're holding a, a grudge towards? You're holding in contempt? Maybe it's a family member around holidays, you're like, oh, I dread Thanksgiving because I know I'm going to run it, but we'll just, you know, it'll... Or maybe it's somebody you run into... Aldi, <laughs> like, I'm going to go down another aisle because I don't want to have to make eye contact with because I'll probably murder or throw a can of whatever. You know, like, maybe it's someone like that. And even now, your heart's kind of beating a little bit faster when you think about that person. And it's funny, sometimes it's not even the people that we have disdain in our heart towards. Sometimes it's people that we've just decided, you know, I don't, I don't I'm not, I'm not angry. <laughs> I don't hate them. I won't, I don't want to punch them but we just withdraw. We just withhold relationship. We avoid. We're kind, but it's, it's detente. You're on your side. I'm on my side. Good to see you. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want harm to come then, but maybe you're not offering kindness. Vulnerability. Love, relationship. Maybe instead of staying where we are, we can begin to see what God can do in, in taking a step forward and toward that person. You know, Paul, Saul, knew a lot about this, and he wrote to a couple churches, and this is what he said about reconciliation. Ephesians 4.31 said this, let all, and listen to these words, and see if one of them might trigger something in your heart. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put from you. And, and just in case you didn't fit there, and along with all malice. And then I love this next verse. It's one of our family verses. Be kind to one another. Tender hearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, how do we do this? That's the question, right? I know I'm supposed to. I know, I know I'm supposed to. And, and what we're tempted to do is then to kind of dig deep for something within that is good and is loving. And maybe you've reached down. You're like, there's nothing. There ain't nothing there. I got, I got no love in my heart for. And then Paul says here, the where it comes from. 2 Corinthians 5, he says, all this is from who? It's not up yet. I'll let you get it when it's up. All this is from God. There we go. All this is from God. All this is from God. There's no way that we can experience reconciliation in our relationships. There's no way that we can, in our own strength, have the kind of love that we're being invited into if God doesn't first do a work in our hearts first. Paul continues, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. 
So the brokenness of that relationship between us and God. And listen to what he then says after this. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He has passed the baton to you and I. Here you go. As I look at you and I see you, I don't see the sin and brokenness that once separated us because of what Jesus did. I see the perfection of my son and you are clothed in that righteousness. And now we get to be those who in turn lean back and grab the baton and take on this ministry of reconciliation. The Greek word that Paul uses that you got previewed before is alasso. That word literally means to change or to return to favor what God can do in our relationships, change them, return to favor, to move from one of dissension and hatred to harmony and unity. It's what the gospel does. It reconciles relationship. We see this in Saul and Barnabas, but let's go, keep going. We see this also in a guy named Mannion. Look back at chapter 13 and verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Mannion, the lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Now why is this connection to Herod so important? If you're familiar with the Gospels, you might be familiar with this guy. The Herods are not good dudes. You may remember this is the guy when Jesus was born and, and they said he was going to be a king. Herod was the guy who was in charge who was like, I don't, I don't want anyone to threaten me. And so he decided to make sure every boy in Bethlehem was killed so that there would be no competition for his throne. This is a guy that has no, was no stranger to murder. He had his brother-in-law killed. He had his mother-in-law killed, which some... Some things are understandable. <laughs> he had his second wife killed. And then he actually married his stepbrother's ex-wife. Talk about awkward family photos. This guy was crazy, murderous. And apparently he's best friends with this guy, Mannion. This is the same guy that you remember when Jesus was arrested and Pilate was like, I'm not in charge. He sends him back to a guy named Herod. Herod is excited because apparently he did these magic tricks or miracles and he wanted to see them. And this was that guy that ultimately was responsible for the death and crucifixion of Jesus. This is that Harry, that Mannion. Best friends, tight. And somehow these guys are connected. Mannion is in the inner circle of the church in Antioch. And this is proof that there is power in the gospel to overcome our past. One of the lies that I am most tempted to believe and I hear most often from people is like, uh, you know, I, I'm too far gone. There's no way that God could use me. There's no way that God could use us. We're a mess. I'm a mess. If you knew where I'd been, the things I thought, if you knew the struggles that I have, and yet as we look throughout history and the scriptures, we see that God brings in the outermost edges of darkness people who he will bring into his family who will shine most brightly. And he loves it because the world will know something miraculous has clearly taken place. You cannot outrun God's love and you cannot outsin 
his grace. This is who he is. And Mannion's present at Antioch proves this. It shows us that the gospel is not just for those who have it together, not for those who are righteous, but for those like me who are broken and who struggle but can be changed by the power of the gospel. And we see that as relationships are reconciled, this list of people here in Acts 13, it's crazy as you think about who they are and where they come from. Look at this list. Barnabas, he's from Cyprus. He's a Hellenistic Jew. Simeon called Niger, that's Latin for black. Then you've got Lucius from Cyrene. He's from African descent. Manning, he's a Palestinian, a Greek Herodian. And then there's Saul of Tarsus, who's a Hebraic Jew. He grew up in Jerusalem. This is a reality TV show waiting to happen, right? All these different people from all these different backgrounds brought together. And let's see what's going to happen now. This, it's going to be interesting. I can tell you this. And it was. These people had no business being in community together if it weren't for the work of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit. These people would have been trained from an early age to despise each of these cultures, and yet their primary identity now becomes not where they're from, what their color is, how much they make, how old or young they are, but the fact that they are Christ followers. And that has the power to unite anyone and everyone, no matter where we're from. And it's no secret that we've been praying for a long time that God would continue to bring about diversity here in our church. People from all kinds of different backgrounds, young and old, rich and poor, black and white. That because of what Jesus is doing in this community, we're distinct and different and unique and called to be Christ's followers. Those things that might otherwise send us into different corners because of those differences now bring us together and we can learn from and grow from one another and be strengthened by each other. And the onlooking world will look at us and say, what, why, are they why are they together? What's going on? There, that these people would be in the same room, in the same family. That's what the gospel does. It's the fruit of reconciliation because of Jesus. We see the gospel reconciles relationships, but then we begin to see the Spirit of God working in a unique way. Look down at verse 2 of chapter 13. While they're worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said... Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Now, Paul and Barnabas, they'd spent a couple of years pouring into all these men I just mentioned. These were their teachers. They were their leaders, but they're in some kind of a prayer meeting, apparently. They're waiting and they're listening to God for his instruction. That's what Brian talked about that we did this past Thursday. There were about 30 of us crammed in the church office, waiting and listening to God, asking him to reveal what his will is for us. As we look ahead to the future of our church, what he wants us to build, why he wants us to build it, and how he wants to use a facility to advance his kingdom. We just waited. We asked. And he began to speak. And it was incredible. These different scriptures and pictures began to come out and into this community. And we're beginning to more clearly see how he's leading us. 
The same thing happens here in Antioch. They're listening and the Spirit begins to lead. And when the Spirit leads, it almost always means He's going to stir sacrifice. And He's going to invite us to take a risk. It's going to cost us something. And I had a flashback when I was thinking about this experience of when you know, Katie and I, about seven years ago, were back in Knoxville and the Elders of Tourist Church had gone through a long season of praying and asking God what he was going to invite them to do and how they was leading that church. And eventually he made it clear that God was calling Katie and I to be sent out and to begin a new movement initiated by God. So this is the elders praying for us in the service before they sent us down here. And there was sacrifice involved. They lost the greatest youth pastor that the world would ever know. Some of y'all are like, you, you, you can send you back, actually. We're good with John, and we'll be all right. <laughs> but they were faithful, not only to listen, but then to obey. It's powerful. Here are the church in Antioch. Listen, if, if, if you wonder what God's will is, it's just be still. Invite God in. Begin to see him on the pages of Scripture, using the Spirit of God to illuminate his word, to direct our steps. And then when he says, move, then we move. We say, yes, God, I know it's going to cost me something, but I'm in an Antioch. We see the Holy Spirit said, send Barnabas and Saul, and they did. Here in Udawa, when God says to do something, we're going to do it. Because God is good, and his plans for us are good, but that probably means it's going to cost us something. It probably means that we might have our hands wrapped tightly around something that he's going to want to open up our hands to. It may be just a hardness, or a, maybe it's a distance relationally, maybe it's taking risks, opening up our hands, saying, God, I I trust you and whatever you've put in my hands, I'm offering to you. Because God invited you to do something risky or costly, sacrificial. Over the last 2,000 years, men and women have laid aside their comfort and safety so that people could know, see, and fall in love with Jesus. And Jesus changed everything. The gospel changed everything. And he could change he can change us too. This past uh, Monday morning, uh, Katie and I, we get up a little earlier than the kids and uh, have our Jesus time in the morning in the living room. And eventually our four kids at all are upstairs. They come stampeding downstairs. You may know the drill in your home as well. But one of my children beat the other three. And I could tell as he came down the stairs and turned the corner and came towards me, I could tell something was on his mind, you know, like something was weighing on him a little bit. And so it's Joshua, my middle son. He's 10 years old. And I said, hey, hey, buddy, what's going on? And he said, daddy, I, I need to tell you something. I said, okay, buddy, lay it on me. What's going on? He said, well, you know, last night when you and you know, your small group is down by the fire pit and uh, Oliver and I were upstairs in the bonus room. Well, we came downstairs from the bonus room and we got into the pantry and uh, we got some cookies. 
And he had this and he showed it to me. And he said, and we ate them. And he said, and it's just tearing me apart. <laughs> A 10-year-old son. Just, just the weight of, of his conscience. He could not open up and share and confess. Now, let me ask you. What would lead a 10-year-old to confess something that he totally would have gotten away with? Perhaps could have gotten him in trouble because the next thing I said was, well, go get my belt. I'm just kidding. I didn't say that. <laughs> You're like, you are horrible, horrible. I didn't say that. I'm just kidding. No, of course. My heart was tenderized. I'm like, yeah, go get the rest of the cookies. Let's eat them together. What father doesn't see his son truly moved by the Spirit of God, responding courageously in a way that could have been sacrificial? He, he, Jesus loves the Lord. The Spirit lives in him, and he was moving in him. I wonder if just to give us an example, Jesus always pointed to kids. They're the best examples. I believe that in the same way the Holy Spirit is moving in us, inviting us to trust Him today. As we think about how we move back in Acts 13, two quick things. I just want to ask you a quick question. And I love that word in the Greek for reconciliation, that word, alasso. It reminds me of this. Do you know what it is? It's a lasso. See what I did there? And it's funny, the thing about lassos is that, you know, they're designed to be thrown towards something or someone to wrap them up and then to pull them close. I was thinking about how God invites us to partner with him in this ministry of reconciliation. And I'm wondering for you, is there someone in your life that's out there that maybe he wants you to toss a lasso around and pull close? Maybe that person isn't out there. Maybe that person is right here. Often it is the people closest to us that over time we, we hurt each other. We say dumb things, we do dumb things. It creates dissension and division in our closest relationships and the enemy loves it. And what if this morning God is saying, I want you to lay that down. I want you to pick up this lasso by the power of the Holy Spirit and I want you to send this out and around that person and I want you to pull them close. Don't wait for that person to make the first move. I want you to lean in. Let me ask you, is there someone in your life that fits that description? The second thing we saw the Spirit doing in Acts 13 is a stirring sacrifice. I wonder if God has been doing this to you. Just nudging you ever so gently. Hey, I have something for you. I have more. It's going to be costly. That's why it's called a sacrifice. But I, I put this in your hand because I want, 
want you to watch me take what I've given you and do incredible things. Maybe it's just taking that first step. Maybe that's the thing that he's inviting you to do. Maybe it's opening up your world to where you want to say, God, I I want you to use my life in a new way. I want you to show up my gifts and my time. Maybe, Maybe it's a neighbor that God's saying, hey, I want you to take a step towards. It's a resource that you're holding on to that has said, hey, I want want you to trust me with that. How is God moving in your story? How does he want to change you through these opportunities? What might be different about your story if you begin to say, yes, yeah, trust you, God.